You're listening to the Journey Home Podcast. Welcome to the Journey Home Podcast. This is Matthew Starrett. I'm a psychotherapist and musician based in Surrey, UK. The premise for the Journey Home is to offer space for conversation with those sharing a lived experience of addiction, mental health, and a multitude of topics that resonate with the guest. The aim is to promote awareness of the dialogue content and serve as a pathway to therapeutic services. My guest today is Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna is Professor of Psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and Chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She is the author of the best-selling book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, which explores how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a dopamine-overloaded world. Anna has appeared on some of the most listened-to podcasts, including The Huberman Lab and Armchair Expert with Dax Shepard. Check those out if you haven't already. So it is a real honor to have her on the journey home. Anna was someone I'd been wanting to have on the podcast since its inception. My good friend Max Edwards, shout out to Max, introduced me to her work a few years ago, and I've always enjoyed listening to what she has to say, particularly around addiction. Anna and I discussed what drew her to the field of psychiatry, the relationship between dopamine and addiction, her experience of psychotherapy, and the potential issue with focusing solely on one thing as the problem, and the importance of considering nature, nurture, and neighborhood. I'd always been interested in her writings around restoring homeostasis when it comes to recovery from addiction, so it was really great to explore this further with her. Anna speaks with such clarity and provides real accessibility into areas that can often seem pretty complex, I think that's what drew me into her work. So she's a doctor and a psychiatrist. Now, these are two things I recognize often activate my own imposter syndrome. But for me, she has this real gift of making me feel enlightened and at ease simultaneously. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. I'm here with Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna, thanks so much for being here with me today. I'm delighted. Thank you for inviting me. So I often start these conversations by asking my guests about their journey up to this point. And in your book, Dopamine Nation, I really liked your honesty. Um, And there was a part in there that really stood out for me, which is when you say how you were restless and irritable from childhood. So I wondered if you could talk a bit about any, any notable childhood or teenage experiences and indeed what drew you to the field of psychiatry. Yeah, thank you for that. It's always fun as a mental health care provider to have the opportunity to talk about oneself a little bit. Um, So yeah, that is my impression of my childhood self that I was restless and irritable that that's based partially on my own subjective experience, but also on the stories that were told about me, which in and of itself is interesting. Because, of course, uh, you know, the people who are telling the stories have their own issues, agenda, framework, lens. And the the person who was mainly talking about me in that way um, was my mother, you know, with whom from very early on, uh, you know, I did not have a good relationship. And it's interesting through my life i've i've looked at that through so many different lenses as a child i thought it was my problem or my fault or something wrong with me 
in my young adulthood, I went to the other side of the pendulum, uh, something wrong with her. And now in my middle age, uh, I've settled down somewhere in the middle, not her fault, not my fault, but um, a temperamental mismatch that persists to this day, but that we have a good understanding about, which is really kind of nice. So yeah, this sense of being kind of a, a contemplative and unhappy child. And that, that was also my subjective experience. I was sort of persistently unhappy. Um, but I, I think, you know, some of that was just my natural wiring. And some of that was that I grew up in an environment that was, you know, non-ideal. There was no overt trauma, but there was parents who were constantly at work, uh, a sort of a parade of um, nannies or live-in help. Um, so, so a lot of actually um, upper-class neglect, I think, middle to upper-class neglect is sort of, and then an enormous amount of moving around and also immigrants, so not extended, no extended family, this kind of excessive reliance on ourselves and, and, and our nuclear family being pretty dysfunctional. So, you know, not an uncommon story. Um, really glad those days are over. Don't resent my my parents anymore because I really think they did the best that they could do. Totally. Okay. It's, it's interesting kind of off the bat, I relate so much to that. I recognize it, it wasn't something I was actually going to ask you, but I think it kind of has to come in when I hear about everyone's subjective experience. I guess trauma, you use that word trauma. How have you found it? working as a psychiatrist, this kind of notion that, and this might be something we come on to later with addiction, there are those things, there's like the big trauma, there's the addictions, but actually there's a lot of stuff sometimes underneath. I, I had a, a guest on season one, and it's always stayed with me, um, Pat DeYoung, a relational psychotherapist, and she was saying those, those constant little misses mm -hmm. and that kind of sense of, you know, you say upper middle class neglect, but also that what we were told shapes us. You know, I remember that for me, well, well, that's me, I guess, that's my identity. And then, well, I want to be as far away from that as possible and then trying to find that balanced ground. So <laughs> I realize I'm saying a, a few things in there, but um, maybe it would be useful actually to kind of, to pause on that, you know, for anyone listening who is like, yeah, my childhood was okay, but I, I don't know, some, there was something, but it doesn't fit into this category. Am I allowed mm -hmm. to say that I had a difficult childhood, mm -hmm. even though actually, hey, I. I went to the best schools. I moved around lots. I was told you should be grateful. Think of mm. starving children, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Does that kind of resonate? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think, you know, these sort of micro empathic failures have a huge impact on us in those formative early years and certainly do shape our identity. So it's all those tiny micro interactions, those, the affective yeah. resonance or lack thereof. Um, the sense of either a goodness of fit with our primary caretakers or an absence somehow of fit, an absence of being understood. Um, oh, absolutely, the cumulative effect over that time is, is very impactful. But I do think that what is missing from this conversation of trauma, not you're in my conversation, but the broader <laughs> conversation yeah. uh, of trauma, is the recognition that being a human being even in the ideal situation with the ideal caregivers is still painful and difficult. And yeah. also depending upon our innate biological wiring, you know, we could be more or less unhappy, even 
with an ideal kind of environment. And the reason I think that's really important to acknowledge and bring in is because I, like so many others of my generation and subsequent generations, can and and maybe mostly should spend some reasonable amount of time trying to process our early experiences to understand how we got to be who we are, but we can also overdo it. Look too much for what is that inciting trauma? Whose fault is it that I am so unhappy? Um, yeah. And really end up in kind of this um, unproductive spiral of, you know, blame, blaming others, uh, blaming circumstances. Um, and, and the answer isn't to blame self, but but rather no. to say, hey, you know, life is hard. Uh, and even when my everything in my life is going well, I could still mm -hmm. be unhappy. And yeah, that's okay. And I'm not alone. Uh, and and I think that 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 we need to bring that back into the conversation. So true. And again, something that just came up for me because you talk so wisely about finding balance and so much on addiction. And I'm wondering from your experience, perhaps, can people be addicted to that kind of stuff? Perhaps, I don't know, like, what do you think? Oh, I love that. Yeah. So I think this is so interesting. And so, uh, you know, you hit the nail on the head that we can actually get addicted to our own ruminations, our own contemplation, our own yeah. sort of psychological uh, introspection. I was just actually working the other day uh, with a patient who was, I was really working with him to try to be mindfully present with mm -hmm. his daughter, which is yeah. you know, it's one major goal of his is to be a good parent. And um, a, an obstacle to him for that is his constant ruminations uh, um, about work. But the other major obstacle is his constant ruminations about his addictive disorder and what he can do to improve his, you know, his addiction, how he can get out of his yeah, addiction. Yeah. And so it really is true that we can um, get addicted in some sense to our anxious ruminations. And that's, uh, you know, people are so wired so differently. And so some people temperamentally might not be prone to that, but I know that I am, right? And so yeah. the recognition that, oh my goodness, this kind of, and this is sort of, in, in you know, in the field of, of recovery, we often talk about this as our resentments. And we yeah. certainly can get addicted to our resentments. Um, you know, yeah. the kind of constantly thinking about the ways that we've been harmed, all all the negative experiences we've had, all the trauma. And, you know, again, some degree of metabolizing those experiences is good and important. But there's got to be a point at which we just say, okay, moving on from here. For sure. It's so interesting. I mean, I think it's definitely something I want to come back to you, that, uh, what I was really wanting to speak about, the kind of notion of process addictions, behavior addictions, mm -hmm. and actually those things which they may be underneath the iceberg or maybe are deemed as, well, that's a good thing to be. That's a really good way of being. Yeah, more of that. When actually it can have a similar effect and we can certainly come back to this, but it reminded me of hearing uh, a colleague once say, you know, recovery from codependency isn't about never holding the door open for someone. <laughs> and I always quite right. like that, <laughs> you know, that kind of notion that there's a balance here somewhere. But um, right. well, on that idea of, you know, it can be possible to get addicted and, you know, humans have drive systems and it can allow us to do such great things, but sometimes different parts of us can get enmeshed with each other and it can become tricky. 
coming back to that question of what drew you to the field of psychiatry and were you really excited about this stuff was there an event you know how did that happen what what took you on this path mm, yeah thanks for that so um i mean from my very first rotation in psychiatry i was drawn to it i remember uh, being on the inpatient psych unit and thinking to myself oh these are my people not only are okay. these my people but one small turn of the dial and that could be me in yeah. you know in the uh uh, you know, the containment room or whatever, instead of that person. So a real strong sense of interest, kinship, um, comfort with the whole field. But um, around exactly at that time when I was in med school, a very close family member of mine had a florid psychotic mania, um, which was super scary. And the first time that I came into direct contact with form frust mental illness, that is to say, the organ of the brain really um, misfiring. And so that was so scary to me that I decided, oh, can't do psychiatry. Um, I'm, I'm, it's just too close to home. Um, I better do something else. So, you know, in my usual fashion, became a pathologist, did that for a couple of years, and then uh, switched to psychiatry and, and really found my intellectual and professional home in psychiatry. What I love about it is because is that it's never boring. It's endlessly varied and fascinating. And also that I feel when that if I can make some small contribution, it's not just to quantity of life, but quality of life. And that the impact um, is not just on that individual, but also on the people who love them and the people who live with them. Yeah. And so it, it felt really meaningful and purposeful to me, and it does to this day. So I feel very lucky and grateful that I found something that that continues to have that kind of pull and that kind of purpose for me. Wow, it's amazing. And, you know, I can hear through your your passion. I imagine your patients are very lucky to to have you, and the world is a better place for having people like you working in it. It sounds like you really bring such authenticity to your work, I guess, is what I hear, which I certainly really value. You know, I love yeah, that kind of well, sense of there yeah. but for the grace of go I kind of right. thing, which is yeah. really powerful, I guess. You know, the sort of, I don't know, I like the Carl Jung wounded healer thing. That's always stayed mm -hmm. with me. I guess when I was training to be a therapist and every kind of imposter syndrome thing was firing in the world, that was kind of what I clung on to in a way. I was like, well, I've got that. Hopefully that could be something. <laughs> and um, yeah. So yeah, it's it's really powerful that stuff. Before I move on, on on that notion of what can be really hard work, I recognize, you know, mental health work, psychiatry, psychotherapy, nursing, you know, so much. When you came back, you know, when you kind of thought, well, oh, this isn't for me, and you came back, how how have you looked after yourself? How have you been able to to kind of practice self-care and maybe for anyone who's listening who is indeed a, a practitioner of which i'm i'm sure there are quite a few what would you say to them who are maybe just mm. like this stuff is really hard like i care but mm -hmm. it's hard to care sometimes too yeah um it's a really good question i think it's changed over the course of my career when mm. i had small children i found that that took so much of my emotional creativity that i really had to cut cut back on the number of patients and also the number especially of psychotherapy patients and i did much more straight medication management which frankly is not that hard um yeah. or that or that creative it can be but yeah, yeah. but sure. it's you know uh it's it's not that it's always easy but it 
for me anyway, doesn't demand the kind of presence that um, and creativity that psychotherapy demands. But as my kids, um, you know, got older and were in school and, you know, needed me less, I could take on more at work in the way of psychotherapy and more challenging cases. So I think it's, you know, it's a matter of dose, like so many things, um, you yeah. know, not overdoing it. And then, of course, the usual things, making sure that there's enough time for good self-care. Oh, well, thanks for sharing that. It's super, super wise. So let's talk about dopamine and addiction and the relationship between the two. So maybe for anyone listening who may be unsure and or struggling with one or more addictive behaviors, I wanted to ask you, how do you define addiction? So addiction broadly defined is the continued compulsive use of a substance or a behavior despite harm to self and or others. It's a very broad definition. Um, the determination of harm is sometimes difficult to make. People can disagree. Uh, the concept of denial in the field of addiction is this idea that uh, people, as they become addicted, have limited or no ability to actually see that harm, and, and that is a true phenomenon. Um, so sometimes the harm is only observed by others, um, and it's subtle. Sometimes the harm is very obvious and and an innocent bystander uh, without any invest investment in the case could could make that determination. I always like to highlight that there are no blood tests or brain scans to diagnose addiction. It is uh, the diagnosis is based on phenomenology, that is to say, patterns of behavior that repeat themselves across time periods and individuals and are very reliable. And that is certainly true of addiction. What we see with addiction, well, first of all, we are all reflexively wired over millions of years of evolution to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And much of our cognitive processing is invested in the task of figuring out how to do that. Addiction is the phenomenon whereby an individual discovers something, a substance or a behavior that either helps them approach pleasure or avoid pain, and then goes back to doing uh, that substance or behavior again and again, quite logically, right? Why not? But the problem with addictive behaviors is that over time they stop working, the brain adapts, mm. then they actually can turn on the person and do the opposite of what was intended, plus there are many uh, longer-term consequences that are very negative. And the non-addicted person will at some point recognize those uh, and say, hey, this isn't working out as well as it was initially. I'm going to modify my behavior. The addicted person will experience what's sometimes referred to as the hijacked brain, where either they cannot see those consequences or even when they see them, it doesn't matter because the drive <clears throat> to pursue that substance and behavior is so overwhelming, then that person continues to engage in that behavior despite harm to self and or others. Yeah. And when you say, you know, the hijack of the brain, often it's it's a really powerful image. And what is going on there? So for, why is it that some people do and some people don't? And perhaps now we're finding out that actually a lot of people do. It's just right. as clear, I guess, which is what, I guess, yeah. you know, we're going to move on to speaking about but from you know you speak about evolution you speak about science i think that's so important that you know the biopsychosocial 
kind of kind of notion. But why is that? Do you do you put that down to a number of things? You know, what what have you seen? You know, what I heard was sort of gathering data in a way. Right. Like what 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 have you seen over the years? Is is there a one reason or more? So there are many risk factors for addiction. I like to group them into three major categories, nature, mm. nurture, and neighborhood. So nature speaks to this idea that people come into this world with variable degrees of genetic vulnerability to addiction. And we know that from twin studies and we know that from family studies. So for example, if you have a biological parent or grandparent uh, with an alcohol addiction, you are at four times increased risk compared to the general population to become an alcoholic yourself, even if raised outside of that alcoholic home. And that's important because what it says is that the genetic risk of becoming addicted is about 50 to 60% of uh, the risk, which is a larger genetic load than for any other mental illness. It's interesting yeah. because we think of things like schizophrenia as very biological, but in fact, the heritable nature of addiction is greater than the heritable wow. nature of something like schizophrenia. So it's very heritable. Um, if you think about those, and by the way, it's not one gene, it's a complex polygenic <laughs> phenomenon, yeah. but I think it's always important to highlight that um, because you know it's not like we're going to discover the addiction gene. We do yeah. know that certain traits like impulsivity, emotion dysregulation, these are sort of enduring personality traits um, that tend to correlate with risk of addiction. Also, people who have co-occurring mental illness, which is also, you know, partially genetic, those individuals are at increased risk of developing addiction. So there's all that stuff that we're born with in our DNA. A second major category of risk is nurture, which is to say how we are raised. And you and I started this conversation talking a little bit about, um, mm. you know, you know, trauma with a big T, trauma with a little T, all the different yeah. types of trauma. We know that trauma increases risk of addiction. Um, interestingly, we have data showing that um, some of the protective factors having to do with certain types of parenting include parents who know where their kids are, what they're doing, what's in their backpack, what's in their closet or under the bed. In other words, helicopter parents, uh, that that turns out that decreases a risk of addiction. So um, being a helicopter parent in this instance is potentially a good thing. Okay. Uh, whereas parents who don't know where their kids are, don't know what they're doing, don't know who they're hanging out with, have a conflicted attachment, uh, yeah. whether helicopter parent or not helicopter parent, um, uh -huh. that's going to increase the risk of addiction. Um, and then finally, you know, you have neighborhood. And this is the category of risk that I think is often underappreciated or maybe even not recognized at all, which is the huge impact that the environment has, especially regarding access to drugs. So one of the biggest risk factors for becoming addicted is simple access to a drug. If you live in a neighborhood where drugs are sold on the street corner, you're more likely to try them and more likely to get addicted. If you go see a doctor who's freely prescribing opioids for pain, you're more likely to be exposed to opioids and more likely to get addicted to them as we saw here with the United States uh, yeah. and North American opioid epidemic. And then when you think about behavioral addictions and digital media, and yeah. really what I, what I call the drugification of everyday life, almost everything today has been turned into a drug by being made more accessible, uh, yeah. more potent, uh, more abundant, and more novel. 
So accessibility, potency, uh, abundance or quantity, and novelty are all things that contribute to the addictive nature of a substance or behavior. And we're now living in this world of overwhelming yeah. overabundance, where even activities that we typically think of as healthy, like reading or exercising or being, you know, connecting with other people, have actually been drugified. Totally. And on that, this kind of notion, and I've I've read some stuff that you've kind of spoken about about this, but the impact of these different things on each other. So perhaps if there's that one thing that's available in one community, yeah, people can take it and run, but the sense of what is it like in this society now with access to everything in a way, like, and, and for you, does that make it harder for someone to find recovery in a way if they have their drug of choice, but actually there's also, oh, I can use this because in a way, I, it'd be interesting to get your take on this because you know you mentioned recovery, and I know how often in in recovery communities there's that kind of notion of don't use no matter what, and that's great, of course. You know, some some addictions, of course, are life or death. But what what's your stance on people who are okay? I'm not going to use this drug, but I'm going to smoke a million cigarettes to get through it. I'm going to use <laughs> pornography. I'm going to go uh -huh. and get in relationships that kind of stuff like is is that going to get them to where they want to go or actually is that potentially not what they need because yeah people are so raw often when they come into recovery but that's something i was kind of wanting to explore with you what your thoughts are on on that kind of notion yeah so i i don't think there's one right or wrong way to get into recovery and mm -hmm. even the definition of recovery is something that you know is nebulous and somewhat intangible and that people are certainly going to disagree about but in general um what 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 we do is we really warn people about the risk of cross addiction that is getting addicted to some other substance or behavior as they're trying to give up the first substance or behavior because it's a very well-documented phenomenon in clinical care, but also in animal studies. So for example, if you get a rat addicted to cocaine and then you take that cocaine away and then you try to get that rat addicted to cannabis, that rat will get almost instantaneously addicted to cannabis compared with a rat who had never been exposed to cocaine. So it's very clear that there's a kind of a priming that happens in the brain with any addictive substance or behavior, which then sets that individual up for addictions to other things. And, you know, as you, as you mentioned first, is it hard to find recovery in the world today? Absolutely very hard to find recovery because all of a sudden now, you know, even the beverages we drink, the food we eat, um, you know, the work that we do, it's all been drugified in some way. So um, it, it, you can binge on almost anything now. Yeah. And that, that, what, that makes the world a very difficult place to live for modern people. Yeah, absolutely. And so talk about dopamine. So where does, this, where does that come into this, this process? Yeah, so dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It's a chemical that we make in our brains. It has different functions, but one of the most important functions is that it's essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, 
and motivation. Now, it's not the only neurotransmitter or chemical involved in that process, but it is the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors and has become for neuroscientists a kind of common currency for measuring the addictive potential of a variety of substances and behaviors. And in general, in the laboratory, the more dopamine that is released and the faster that it's released in the dedicated part of the brain called the reward pathway, the more likely that substance or behavior is to be addictive. So for example, in a rat, chocolate releases uh, dopamine about 50% above uh, baseline. Um, you know, nicotine is somewhere between 100 and 150. Cocaine is around, uh, you know, much higher than that, all the way up into amphetamine is about 1,000. Um, percent above baseline. Now, some of that is artifactual. One of the ways that amphetamine works is actually by dumping dopamine right into the reward system, whereas other drugs are mediated through other chemical cascades. Um, for example, alcohol is moderated through the op endogenous opioid system and the endogenous GABA right. system. Um, human connection is moderated by serotonin. Um, you know, you've got all kinds of different chemical cascades, but the final common pathway for all reinforcing substances and behaviors, and especially all intoxicants, is to release dopamine in that reward pathway. So there's been an explosion in dopamine research in the last 75 years. Dopamine was actually only discovered as a human brain neurotransmitter in the 1950s, so it's a relatively recent molecule of study, but it's been a very fruitful uh, kind of pursuit. And it's been uh, possible through this amazing work of neuroscientists over many decades to begin to understand what happens in the brain as we cross over from healthy, adaptive use of a substance or behavior into okay. addictive use. And to understand that, I, I use this metaphor of a pleasure pain balance like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. One of the most interesting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located in the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance or a teeter-totter. So when we do something pleasurable, uh, that balance tilts to the side of pleasure. When we experience pain, uh, it tilts in the opposite direction. There are certain rules governing that balance. And the first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level with the ground, mm -hmm. what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that with any deviation from neutrality, our brains are going to work very hard to restore a level balance. Now, here's the interesting part. How do our brains do that? Uh, well, they do that first by tilting an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. So let's imagine I eat a piece of chocolate. I really like chocolate. That releases dopamine in my brain's reward pathway. My pleasure pain balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain wants to return to a level balance by downregulating dopamine transmission. Um, and I like to imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't get off as soon as it's level. They stay on until my balance is tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the hangover, the blue Monday, or in my case, yeah, that yeah. moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate, right? Now, yeah. if I resist the craving to have a second piece of chocolate from that great big box of uh, delicious looking chocolates, then the gremlins say, ah, oh, there's no more work for us here. They hop off the pain side of the balance. And homeostasis is restored, and my craving kind of mysteriously goes away. 
it's interesting that you mentioned homeostasis because that's that's one of the bits from from your book that that stood out the most and it, and it's really certainly something i wanted to to talk more with you about just to, to come in is that similar in the process with with anxiety or you talk about hijack so if the amygdala is hijacked and there perhaps someone is their process is maybe from an ocd or reassurance point is that a similar thing in the brain like so staying with it just stay with the difficult feelings is the same thing kind of going on there than in the addictive process you know that kind of notion of this too shall pass does it apply to everything or was it just that sort of addictive part you know what it's a great question and i i think this is probably going to be universal so just a kind of a universal distress tolerance and it's probably mediated by the same set of feel-good hormones which are in a deficit state when we're yeah. feeling anxious when we're feeling depressed the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive drug are anxiety irritability insomnia depression and craving so that means when those gremlins are on the pain side of the balance and jumping up and down there those are the feelings that we are experiencing and of course it's th those feelings that drive us to reach for a second piece of chocolate as a way to restore um, a level balance. So I, my guess is that these are largely conserved mechanisms that have a lot of crossover um, and yeah. are just sort of triggered in different ways. But get, yeah. getting back to the, the pleasure pain balance, just to sort of mm. finish it out and describe what happens in the addicted brain. So the other rule of the balance is that with repeated exposure to the same or similar reinforcing stimulus, that initial deflection to the side of pleasure gets weaker and shorter in duration, mm -hmm. but that after response to pain gets stronger and longer. And you might think of that as the gremlins multiplying, yeah. getting really strong, like turning into Arnold Schwarzenegger gremlins until you end up with enough gremlins on the pain side yeah. of the balance to fill the whole room. And now you're entering addicted brain where we need more of our drug in more potent forms over time to get the same effect because we're essentially at war with the gremlins. And importantly, when we're not using, we are walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain. We've changed our hedonic or joy set point such that now we need to use not to get high and feel good, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And this is really key to understanding addiction and understanding relapse, because from the outside, it can look like people are just selfishly pursuing pleasure, but actually there's no pleasure in addiction. When people are deep in their addiction, it's all pain. And yeah. when they use, it's just a fleeting respite from profound psychological and sometimes physical suffering. Um, so I think yeah. understanding that is really key. And then appreciating that the way out of that is actually to abstain for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins who have now made the pain side of the balance their home to actually mm. get the memo that, oh, okay, we're not getting this exogenous source of dopamine anymore. And that's their restoring the homeostasis process. Yeah, exactly. Okay. To, and eventually they will hop off and eventually that balance you know, assuming that enough brain plasticity is preserved, that balance will go back to the level position. If it feels okay to bring this in here, I guess something I mentioned earlier, and we've kind of touched on this throughout, but the, you know, the notion of process behavioral addictions, those things which, which maybe aren't as tangible, maybe if that's the word, how would things 
like food, sex, perhaps work. How does that apply in the homeostasis period? So perhaps for someone who's like, well, they have a disordered relationship with food, but we need food to survive. Um, and, and this is another thing you've so eloquently spoken about evolution. I'm aware we're relational beings, you know, reproduction and food, you know, they, they've continued to be imperative to our survival. So how, how does that fit with that? Cause I'm, this is the bit I wanted to really kind of hone in with you on that, that really tough, tough stuff that's can be really confusing and, and difficult. Like what, what do you say to people in those kind of places or with those kind of addictions? Yeah. So food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate, these are things that are often referred to in the field as quote unquote natural rewards. So these are the rewards that are fundamental for our survival, for propagation of the species. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for which this entire pleasure pain balance mechanism was essentially evolved. But we must keep in mind that our reward brain, often sometimes referred to as our lizard brain, because the lizard has the same exact neural circuitry unchanged as we do. The only difference in us is that we've piled on layers of cortex. Um, this lizard brain evolved over millions of years for a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. So you might say to yourself, why would Mother Nature be so cruel and make a balance where, with repeated exposure, we have less pleasure over time and more pain over time? Because it's the perfect mechanism for a world of scarcity where we have to keep searching and striving if we're going to stay alive. Now you take that mechanism and you transplant it to the modern day where we have not just an overabundance of food for most modern people living in wealthy nations, but we have a drugified food supply. We have salt, fat, sugar, additives. It's very clear that sugar lights up the nucleus accumbens, which is the core nuclei in our reward pathway. So sugar is a drug, right? And we have an enormous amount of it. And as you say, we're, we do what other people do because we're social creatures and everybody else is eating sugar and it's how we celebrate. The same thing with alcohol. Same thing with sex. We have a, a society that is constantly pulsing us with primers to go out and have sex in all the, you know, its various forms. So I, I think I, I, I want to preface with that because I think we have to start like both with a place of appreciation of how drugified our world is and how difficult it is not be addicted and then have a whole lot of compassion for the mismatch between our ancient wiring and the modern system. It's really, I'm, I'm so, this is amazing. And there's bits, I think this is, you know, as a sort of side note, when I first came across your work, it's that thing of why is there some people that I connect with and some, some that don't, but I think just as you, as you layer it with so many of these important things, it reminds me of some of these other areas. And, and you mentioned there about compassion and, I've always really liked, I don't know if you're familiar with compassion-focused therapy, but um, they talk about the notion of the old versus the new brain. So often the beginning part in compassion-focused therapy, it involves psychoeducation, but it's actually validating, like, you didn't choose this. I mean, you, ta you, you said this a bit earlier, which was, if you're born into a neighborhood where there's drugs, if you're born into a family that deals drugs, your life's going to look pretty different to somebody who was born 
in the mountains of a remote Scottish island. That's not to say you can't have addictive stuff going on, but it just is different. And it, it reminded me of that. I don't know if that kind of resonates for you, that old brain, new brain, but that's, that's what I heard from what you were saying. And there's a kind of sense of, oh, I really like that stuff. That I think because it's so resonated for me. And it's interesting how, how important that stuff is because it goes back to your point about it's important to do the kind of psychodramatic stuff, but it's also important to get the balance of that's useful. I almost think of it as like shining a torch. Okay, yeah, that's useful. Let's take that. But then what? It's using that, I guess, as a way of, you know, again, in, in, in compassion focused therapy, there's a notion of having wisdom. It's like, okay, I've got this wisdom now. How do I use that to then take responsibility? So I wonder if you know, that kind of connects yeah. with what you're saying, yeah. if that resonates. Oh, for sure. I, I think so. I, I know even within my own professional career, you know, when I, I, I finished medical school in the mid-1990s, which was the decade of the brain, uh, where there was an enormous amount of emphasis on uh, psychopathology being within the individual brain based on uh, chemical misfiring. Yeah. Um, and if only we could correct or fix uh, the illness in the individual's brain caused by insufficient uh, serotonin or too much dopamine or whatever, you know, we would uh, be able to uh, cure mental illness. And, and, you know, I think where the field, what the field is recognizing and certainly what, what I have been, um, you know, talking about is just how much psychopathology and mental illness really is this interplay between our innate brain functioning and the world that we live in. And we have just so consistently in mental health, we forget about the context. Now, the way that it's coming to the fore now is this focus on trauma. Trauma, yeah. trauma is, is a word I don't love, but I use yeah. it because it's common parlance. Um, you know, obviously, for a hundred years since Freud, we are aware of how early childhood experiences influence adult psychopathology. That was that was Freud's uh, contribution, plus the concept of the unconscious, this idea that it could, it could be outside of conscious awareness. But somewhere along the way, general medicine and family medicine sort of rediscovered this concept and then used the language of, of trauma to talk about it. And really, you know, I think in its best form, trauma or sometimes social determinants of health is another bit of language that's used, is this recognition that, wow, context matters, environment really matters. You know, it's right. not just people with a brain in a vacuum manifesting these things. It's the interplay between their neighborhood, their caregivers, their school, uh, their socioeconomic circumstances. I mean, it sounds so obvious when you say it, but just highlighting that for recent decades in mental illness, it, that context was completely forgotten. It's coming back in now, but I think the way in which it's coming in is overly focused on this concept of trying to find the specific event in my childhood yeah. that caused me to be unhappy, rather than thinking more broadly about the mismatch between our biology and the world that we've created. And this is essentially the message of Dopamine Nation, that on the face of it, it we should be just all in a constant state of ecstasy given that we've 
we're living longer than ever before. We're richer. We have more leisure yeah. time. We have more access to luxury goods, even of the poor, even among the poorest of the poor. Why aren't we all walking around, you know, euphoric? And the reason is because there's clearly a tipping point where, um, you know, a lot of stuff is too much stuff and certainly more than our brains were evolved to handle. So we have this new kind of challenge in the modern environment where the mismatch itself becomes the source of disease. Yeah. And it's that kind of, as you say, hearing about it, seeing it on paper, I suddenly recognize, wow, that makes so much sense. But then there's the feeling part. And I was thinking about how you had spoken about your childhood and I'm recognizing that kind of idea that, oh, that's why it was like it. Oh, okay, I'll just be fine with them. Oh, but this person still really activates me. You know, what's, <laughs> how does that, and it kind of leads me on to that, my next question, which was, you know, talk about your experience of therapy. So as a practitioner, you speak so eloquently and wisely about this stuff. But when you're activated and you have those facts, how have you kind of found balance within, which is like, okay, I've got the facts, but I'm still really angry at this person, or I'm still getting annoyed. Yeah, I know, okay, yeah, intergenerational trauma, I've got all the facts, but yet something is just still, this is difficult. Like, mm. what then? You know, how to find, yeah, a good enough kind of place mm. within that. Yeah, so it's a good sort of it's a good question. It's sort of like, well, where do we go from here? Where does the field go? Or where where does yeah. how does humanity? You know, I increasingly um well, first of all, I I will say that, you know, as I described initially, I sort of come full full circuit in my view of sort of how my own quote unquote childhood trauma has impacted me. And I've become really deeply skeptical of the idea that our current sense of well-being is shaped by those early experiences. I believe that shaping is happening, but I think it's a drop in the ocean compared to our immediate context and the environment that we find ourselves in right now and the systems that we have in our lives right now. I think the contribution to psychopathology or conversely mental well-being is so much more shaped by immediate context and environment and far outweighs any early childhood experience or really any past experience and this is this is a you know a contrarian view um because there's so much emphasis now on ah uh, if i can just find that moment of trauma and I can uh, sort of reconfigure my life so that I'm not triggered by that trauma, and then I'll be happy. And I mean, I, I don't know if that's true. Yeah, I hear what you're saying. It's There's so many different notions, all of which I find are really exciting, but I do kind of sometimes find it quite difficult sort of logging on on a Monday morning and seeing another type of therapy it's it's quite jangling in some ways <laughs> what's because there's you know i remember a colleague sort of saying they'd been at a trauma conference and it was actually they felt quite traumatized at the end of it because there was mm. so much on it it's like right. is that helpful right now right. You know, it's, where's right. where's that balance but um it's a really tough one you know recognize that because i guess what works for one may not work for another yeah and it's that really difficult kind of balance it brings me on to wanting to explore you know we've spoken a lot about 
talking, thinking, you know, science. And in your book, you talk about things like antidepressants, psychotropic medication. And I just wanted to give that some space if that feels okay. Again, for, for anyone listening to gain some more insight, I guess, who, who may be feeling ambivalent towards that kind of area. So I'm aware that for many, these are a really necessary part of yeah. recovery for things such as depression, anxiety, and many other things, you know, it is a subjective experience. And you note the importance of these drugs for many, but you highlight that perhaps medicating away every form of suffering may come at a cost. So could you talk a little bit about, I mean, again, for me, it's all coming back to this notion of balance. Where is it helpful? Where is it harmful? you know, in this, in this field and how can people who may be listening, who may be more predisposed to that, that kind of addictive behavior, which is I'll do this 110% or I won't do it at all, right. which could be a detriment right. to themselves. How, yeah. how is there a way of finding balance? Like if someone needs to take medication, how can they be okay with that? But if yeah. it might be more useful for them to kind of challenge that idea that they have to take it, how can they get acclimatized to that in our society? Yeah, I, I mean, I these are really hard questions and there's no one size fits all, you know. Mm. Um, but I guess my wish for the field would be that psychiatrists and doctors in general would be less prone to reach for the prescription pad as a first line intervention, especially when it comes to potentially addictive drugs like benzodiazepines, like stimulants, like opioids. Uh, like muscle relaxants, just because they work very, very well in the short term, uh, but cause many more problems uh, in the long term. And then when it comes just even to antipsychotics, mood stabilizers, antidepressants, um, you know, lots of potential risks. I prescribe these medicines all the time. I'm very grateful to have them as tools in my toolbox. Um, but when I have a patient, you know, who's doing well on medication and says to me, I'd like to try to get off just because I want to see how I do, mm. I, I really, I enthusiastically, uh, you know, try to help them do that. We do it very slowly. I think that's the key. You know, it, so, so much of life today is sort of like, let's do it right now and see what happens. <laughs> and so mm. I think small steps uh, done slowly and thoughtfully over long periods of time, this is a good way to kind of assess these things. That's really, that's really interesting. And I really want to ask you about a topic that is is a pretty hot one right now and there's a lot of controversy around it um i knew you know when when you kind of agreed to come on it was like i really want to ask you about this because there's so much on it so psychedelics my confusion is and this links back to what you said about you know addiction and it being it can go into so many areas so is there a risk with that kind of thing that because people can say, well, hey, that's not technically addictive. There can be a danger. Whereas someone with an addictive personality. So, for example, I'm, I'm wondering if you said to a 22-year-old who has maybe just come into recovery from, let's say, substances, alcohol, and a doctor, a psychiatrist is kind of going, right, okay, I think something extra will be beneficial for you. There are these tablets that have no street value they might take a while for you to feel a little bit better and it might be useful to do some therapy as well or you can microdose lsd what do you think now i'm, I'm wondering if that young person might go i'll take the latter thanks from your experience what is going on there <laughs> and mm. it's a good question but I, yeah it, it, yeah I, I really 
value kind of hearing your thoughts on that because I, I recognize it's something that you know not being a doctor not being a psychiatrist and it's not an area i i know a huge amount about but i'm i'm wondering if there are things potentially being missed yeah so first of all it is a myth that psychedelics are not addictive i mean mm -hmm. let me repeat that because it's so important it yeah. is a myth that psychedelics are not addictive they can be highly addictive for a vulnerable individual who has the wiring to be addicted to that particular class of drugs. We yeah. see people with psychedelic addiction all the time. Um, this myth that they're not addictive because there's this refractory period and people develop instantaneous tolerance, uh, it's simply uh, not true. Um, so I want to get, get that out there front and center. Number two, the evidence such as it is and it's not robust in my opinion but the scientific evidence such as it is in support of psychedelics as a therapeutic agent to treat depression anxiety ptsd you name it is based exclusively on using them as an adjunct to psychotherapy so this is like three or four instances of use under the supervision of a trained therapist as a supportive tool for psychotherapy, psychotherapy being the main uh, vehicle for healing. We do not have any reliable evidence that on their own, uh, psychedelics are therapeutic. Uh, for, and, and we certainly don't have any evidence that microdosing micro or dosing yourself, obtaining it on your own, and dosing yeah. yourself is useful. So given all of that, why on earth are we seeing just incredible increases in the number of people using these, trying them? Well, because like with any intoxicant, they feel good. And so in the short term, many people will have a very positive response. And that's not surprising. That would be true if you took cocaine or heroin, uh, you know, you name it, just the long, long list of intoxicants there. So, you know, th that's what they're getting. They're getting those short-term effects, which again, if their particular wiring makes that reinforcing for them, they yeah. will want to do again and again. You then add that, add to that, 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 that the narrative that this is not just about getting high, which, you know, in the days of LSD, it was just about getting high, right? Nobody pretended that it was therapeutic, but now you've got a whole narrative that this is in fact therapeutic. And it's very similar to the narrative we have around cannabis, right? Oh, cannabis is my medicine, it's not my drug. And once you get that narrative going that it's medicine, much harder to get people to see it as something that's potentially harmful. Then you yeah. add to that the kind of groupthink uh, that manifests in a culture at a given point in time, driven by the dominant narrative, largely propagated by media, um, and media is now our instantaneous revolution via Instagram and Snapchat and Facebook and Twitter and you name it. This, this idea that not only uh, is this going to heal your depression, anxiety, PTSD, but you can have a spiritual awakening. Oh my goodness, you can basically turn into yeah. Buddha. Um, There's a lot of, lot of pressure to kind of have the greatest experience. And for that person who doesn't, are they going to feel they've got it wrong? Are they going to have to take more? Or lie about their experience. Or lie or about even, their experience. Or even the placebo effect, because, you know, the placebo, <laughs> yeah. is, placebo is fascinating. And, you know, the studies show that if you give somebody a placebo and you say, this is a placebo, but you also say, 
it has helped other people feel better, you are more likely to get a positive placebo response. So you've got this thing that's then tied to the culture and the cultural narrative that says this is going to help you, plus the fact that it's intrinsically reinforcing and potentially addictive because it releases a whole lot of serotonin and norepinephrine all at once, which then releases dopamine. Um, So you've got this kind of, you know, unfortunately, a, a very misinformed narrative circulating you know, in the population now. And, and what the, the big, big danger here too is that psychedelics more so than other drugs are very idiosyncratic. There's a lot of inter-individual variability. Some people will have a good response. Some people will have a, a negative response. And those negative responses can be extremely negative. Psychosis, um, acute suicidality, self-harm, other harm. And we have almost no reliable data on the safety profile of these uh, molecules. So you've got this sort of myth of they're therapeutic, they're spiritual, they're not addictive, uh, they're not harmful. And in fact, you have almost no data to support really any of those things. Thank you for speaking about that. I think it's, it's so important. And certainly for me, that was really powerful hearing you say that um and i hope that's that's useful to some people listening um i remember the there's a bit in the simpsons where they're going crazy over something that turns out to be a placebo and i think chief wiggum's line is well, where do we get these placebos <laughs> <laughs> so it reminded right. me of that so this kind of idea that we can do harm to ourselves with so much in a way how can we then where does that leave us with things like we spoke about compassion? So, for example, I'm imagining somebody who tells themselves every day, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good, I'm no good. And this is going a little bit off topic, but that's going to reinforce that belief in their brain. Mm-hmm. Whereas perhaps, you know, this is where I guess therapy comes in, that idea of changing the narrative. Right. But where does that kind of play out with, with what we've spoken about? So are you, are you kind of pro that kind of idea, like, you know, visualizing compassion, activating compassion, because it, it's, and I'm not sure if I've got this fully right, but perhaps it's, if you think about a delicious piece of chocolate, you're going to want a delicious piece of chocolate. There are some that believe that if you think about the idea of being compassion, you're kind of rewiring your brain, you know, do you kind of believe in that stuff? Or, you know, what do you find useful? I guess is the, is the actual question. What have you found useful for hitting it up with something more beneficial because we're probably going to look for something, right? It doesn't just necessarily disappear. So like therapeutically, meditatively, spiritually, whatever it is, I'd be really interested in hearing like your kind of take on moving towards that place of compassion, that place of recovery, that place of kindness, whatever it is. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, sort of the, the, the starting place is always going to be awareness. And just realizing where our brain goes, what are the neural networks that are sort of our defaults and that we've really primed and strengthened over time? Because as the you know saying goes in neuroscience, what fires together, wires together. The more we use a neural network, the stronger it gets. Um, so, you know, I, I'll never forget a patient of mine in recovery who, who took him a long time to realize he said that self-loathing was in some paradoxical way his happy place. Right. Mm. He had gotten just so accustomed to this, this sort of self-loathing thinking, emotion, thought, that it was just sort of his default that he went to. So that the first step for him was just becoming aware of that. And then once you're aware of it, 
then practicing mindfulness the moment when you go there, you know, because we, we do it as a default, just like we start picking our nose without realizing it. We, we don't realize we're, you know, we're doing yeah. it or we reach for our phone without realizing it. You know, when we start to fall into those thought loops, really recognizing how involuntary it is um, and when it's happening. And then, of course, that moment of recognition coupled with the moment of compassion, like, oh, wow, I really do this all the time and involuntary. And then, it, and then with com- awareness and compassion, very often comes the cessation of that thought loop. Um, not always, you know, and there's you know, quite a bit of overlap between addiction and OCD. But, you know, yeah. I think awareness, compassion, and then, yes, an intentional effort to rewire the brain and to stimulate other thought patterns. So, and, and, you know, we do that and we're so, humans are so creative. For example, uh, with sex and pornography addiction, one technique, um, you know, that people use, because of course, what's so difficult about sex addiction is that as my patient says, the bar is in the brain, right? I don't have to go out. It's my own fantasy life that that gets triggered. That one of the things that that patients with uh, sex addiction will do when they're beginning to fantasize is then to conceptualize, because just thinking of a man who's imagining a a woman, a lot of times it's just even seeing an attractive woman triggers that. But then to think of that person as my mother or a spiritual person or a saint or a person who suffers. So imbuing that person with their own humanity, with their own suffering, um, imagining them as somebody holy or spiritual so kind of like the opposite of somebody (laughs) who's going to gratify my immediate sexual desires and then and then also that's true right it's a true thing it's not a made-up thing it's a true thing and i'm kind of refracting my lens and Mm. looking at the person or the world or whatever it is in kind of a new light and and so you know i think with sort of self-loathing or negative self-talk I mean, a lot of people find that the spiritual pathway is very helpful. You know, I am beloved. Um, I am lovable. God loves me um, you know, just as I am, however one conceives of, of God, etc. So these kinds of spiritual, spiritual lens, which tends to be a place of more optimism and compassion, gratitude, these types of things. And perhaps on that, for those who who may be atheist or agnostic, they can still access that kind of place. I think so. You know, a a view of humanity, for example, as Mm. fundamentally good, um, fundamentally giving, remembering times of kindness from other people and imagining that all of humanity could be that way. Really, really interesting. Well, thank you so much. I mean, there's just so much I could continue speaking about, but I'm aware of the time. So before I let you go, Something I invite all my guests to do at the end is some word association. Okay. Um, started off as a bit of a bit of fun, and I guess a nod to sort of Carl Jung as just an idea that could be cool. But I've really valued that kind of subjectivity that everyone brings. Yeah. You know, we've spoken about the kind of power of the brain and these tricky brains. And if it feels okay, I'll throw some words at you and sure, like to a, hear what like a verbal up. Rorschach or something. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'll I'll say one and just say whatever comes up we've got about okay. uh, six or so here so okay. does that sound okay yeah sure sounds fun cool let's do it so family love ocean vastness anger gosh uh me <laughs> <laughs> 
Head. Tail. Money. Power. And finally, compassion. Uh, therapy. How was that? Did it take you where you thought it would? Yeah, I mean, I don't think my answers were very interesting, kind of cliched, but that's what came up. After they were pretty good answers, sounded pretty okay. cool to me. <laughs> um, well, listen, Anna, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It has been such a privilege speaking with you. I'm really grateful for you coming on and sharing. Oh, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. It was really interesting. Great. Well, I'll hopefully see you and speak to you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Take good care. Thanks, Anna. Bye. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Anna Lemke. I will include links to Anna's website and also her book, Dopamine Nation, in the episode description below. The Journey Home was brought to you in conjunction with Portobello Behavioral Health. Music and production by Matthew Starrett, edited by Tom Worrell. You've been listening to the Journey Home podcast.